Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me again here from LDI on Geezers of Gear. I appreciate you being here. It's a really cool show. For those of you who are not at LDI this year, you missed out. The show is, uh, I would say, probably way better attended than I thought it was going to be, and um, the quality of attendees is really good. Uh, you know, I was just talking with a lighting designer friend of mine uh Howard Ungerleiter, who I'm sure most of you know, who uh, said that, he said, Marcel, I got to tell you, this is my favorite LDI that I've ever been to. And he's been going for as long as I have since the very beginning. So, um, you know, I like it. I like some of the things that the organizers did. Uh, you know, they've got these uh, stages right on the show floor where where people are going up and having these speaking sessions and stuff. And uh, instead of doing those in breakout rooms, they're doing them right on the show floor. One is right next to the circle bar, which is very conveniently located because uh, it catches people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they've done a great job. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad that the manufacturers who are here seem to be doing very well. So one of those I have here today with me. So I'm probably going to screw up the pronunciation of your last name. I should have asked you this, but it's John Gresh from very good. from very good. <laughs> from Airy. And so thank you, John, for coming. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I know you're probably a little bit busy here at the show, um, but I appreciate you being here. I did uh, confess to John that I'm certainly not a television lighting expert, so he's going to guide me through some of this stuff. And, and uh, as he talks about the technology, he's going to be gentle with me because uh, I'm more of a rock and roll lighting guy. So um, anyways, John, thank you. Thanks for coming. So let me ask you a quick question. A lot yes, of people sir. have fun saying what was your first concert that you ever went to. Yeah. And I'm happy to say the first concert I ever was exposed to was Led Zeppelin. And the first song I ever heard on stage was the Immigrant Song. Oh, my that God. That was my baptism to rock and roll. You know how jealous I am of you right now because, <laughs> you know, I'm born and raised in Calgary, Canada. And uh, Led Zeppelin, I think, went to Vancouver once and either Toronto or Montreal once. And I was very young at the time, so I didn't travel to either one of those cities to see them. And um, I was visiting family in Ontario. I was probably 12 years old or something. And we were either getting or we had tickets to see Led Zeppelin in Buffalo. And um, it was when... I think Robert Plant's kid died or something mm. happened and they had to leave, stop the tour. And, uh, but yeah, it's my one band that I wish I've seen and I've never seen. And yeah, this uh, was 1970, so it was early on. Yeah, I would have been six. <laughs> yeah, I was six in 1970, so I might have missed that one. But mine, what was my first concert? I, I often forget, I think... It might have been Alice Cooper, Welcome mm -hmm. to My Nightmare, uh, which is pretty... It was either that or uh, I was talking with... Do you know Smoother from Delicate? I know of him. Yeah. I do not know. So Smoother came here with uh, Supertramp, came to America mm -hmm. with Supertramp. And, uh, and I was talking with him. I think it was either Supertramp, Crime of the Century, or it was Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare was my, my first concert, but... Yeah, so let so. me just interject something about Supertramp. I'll get to this in a little retro here. Ah. But we had the opportunity in the 80s to build a case for their nine-foot Boysendorfer piano that they used on oh. the Supertramp tour. Yeah. And that was our thing, was making some cases for their tour, which was a different section of my life I'll get to later. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about your life. So, you know, I... I had no idea that you were with with uh, Ari for thirty three years. That's, that's correct, uh, almost thirty four now. That's a bit of a run. Mm -hmm. You don't it's jump around a lot, apparently. No, I mean I've had uh, a few steps before I got there, and they were intertwined. Yeah. But the opportunities have grown within, so I yeah. didn't have any need or any desire to move away from what was offered. Yeah. So you say opportunities have grown. So like, you started, I think, as a regional mm -hmm. when you first went there, right? Right. And uh, and then what happened? Well, see, 
a couple of things to background. The cameras for Aerie were being brought into the North American market and specifically the U.S. market for quite a few years before the lighting products were. Mm -hmm. And part of that was because they were marketed through a third-party company. Just so happened that the first lighting company I worked for, Berkey Colortran in the 70s, where yeah. Joe Tawil was president when I first came, happened to, the parent company, happened to market the Airy cameras okay. in the same building. Oh, wow. Out of Burbank, California. They also had a New York location, but I was in Burbank. So that's how I first became aware of Airy, the company, but I never really became aware at that moment that they had lighting equipment that was overseas because it wasn't being imported until 78, 79. Oh. So a wonderful gentleman and a colleague and a dear friend of mine, Charlie Davidson, was hired away from Colortran to start being the first salesperson handling all of the United States himself in 1980. And after I finished my stint with my case company, because mm -hmm. as I told people after seven years of sniffing glue, it was time to go back to the lighting <laughs> business. But I had this wonderful run with my own business with Joe Tuil as partner and I had a third partner. But 1987, Charlie said to me he was looking for somebody to handle the West Coast and he would handle the East Coast. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, he had said that as far as lighting was concerned, he had went from a company with low market share to a company with no market share. Right. We really started in the very first steps when it came to the airy lighting within the U.S., but by the time Charlie had gotten to 87, he had some momentum going. Yeah. So I could flow on his momentum they'd set, but I could do it with regularity because of the proximity of being near the customers. Right. That's the beauty of Hollywood and the areas that surround, is if you're nearby, you can go visit a lot of people per day. Right. And so I would visit all the studios, I would visit all of the uh, people that were be interested in the product. And yeah. it was just good old-fashioned, good salesman, Bringing the product by. Did you deal at the, at the time back then? Would you have dealt with Olison? Oh, yes. Her name? In fact, Marge Romans. Marge. Marge, Marge right. was definitely a mentor. Yeah. I dealt with her, though, during the color trend days of the 70s. And I right. could tell you some wonderful stories of what happened when the mini ellipse came out from Berkey Color Trend and Marge bought a thousand pieces. So this is well before those numbers happened with Source 4 and everything right, else. Right, yeah. So she bought a thousand mini ellipses and everybody's jaw dropped and I was smiling from here to here. <laughs> but Marge and I did a lot of business together and her husband Stu was also very much a mentor to her. Right, yeah. I, I did business with them in, in uh, Moving Lights mm -hmm. probably in the beginning, early 90s, and I met a gentleman there named Mark Rudge. Oh yes, Mark's working for our company. Yeah. But in the rental division called Illumination Dynamics, yeah, which is course. an area owned company. I, I keep forgetting that he's part yeah. of uh, so the area. Mark, Mark is a dear friend, yeah. wonderful gentleman. Yeah, I like Mark a lot. I, I've known Mark uh, again since the early 90s. He was one of the. I moved to the United States in uh, 1991, and he was one of the first people that I met remarkably uh, when I started working here in the United States and uh, remains friends today. So. Yeah, he's a wealth of knowledge and just a wonderful person. Yeah, he is. He's a good dude. So, you know, what the people that you're talking about, the companies, some of them were bought and sold. Some of the people moved around. But even in some of those core places, they become lifelong threads to the work that happens later. Mm -hmm. And you could probably make an interesting board game of connecting all the dots for yeah. all of these things. And maybe that would be something to uh, have a little fun with in some fashion. But... Um, the equipment that was being used was pretty divided between what was being used for stage, what was being used for motion picture. Mm -hmm. Clearly, everybody knows Mole Richardson had the lion's share of motion picture lighting equipment, which was tungsten-based. Right. And it was in the very early 70s that Aerie took the Osram HMI lamp and used it for the Munich Olympics. And one of their choices was to have it so you could energize the entire light by having all the switches in the right direction, of course, um, so they could throw the bull switch and throw all the lights on, like you would do a bank of stadium lights. Right. Interestingly enough, other people who were developing for the Hollywood market, as opposed to that, went with momentary switches, so you could turn on from either ballast or the head. And this became actually a thread 
for about, well, quite frankly, all the way to now. It's just we've outlasted a lot of the other people right. that yeah, have yeah, come yeah. there. Yeah. So it's interesting when you track a lot of these threads. And even um, I talk about my mentor, Joe Tawil, although Joe was not involved with the airy days, I remember a lot of things that he said when we were partners for seven years in the 80s. And I also remember a lot of things that he talked to me about just recently. Uh, I told you before we started, he passed away yesterday. Yeah, and there's been a lot sad. of posting about this at LDI. But uh, I did have a chance to uh, speak with him and, and be with him a few times over the last few months. And he was hoping that people would kind of develop this thread and kind of what might have led to something. And these are all in, in good stories already. Yeah. In fact, your podcast probably have many of them. Yeah, yeah. But that was one of the goals that he was trying to see is how to make this flow of when did things get used where, when did the moving lights get used into motion pictures first, and that's all documented. When did other technologies for motion picture make its way into other places? And that's been one of the successes that at least I knew the people to contact or the people to say, would this work for what you're doing, whether they were a designer or whether they were producing the show or whether they were the rental house provider. Interesting, yeah. But what's happened now is a lot of the customers, as we get to here, are very aware of all the supply sources. And some of the large rental houses, of course, deal with all the markets, and so they can just pull from their inventories, but maybe internally they may separate it a bit. So they may have a level of equipment that's primarily kept for the application of motion picture mm. or kept for the, mo the application of broadcast, but it's not like they can't make that decision pretty much last minute right. within the rental side. So one of the biggest changes we've seen is these companies the size of Olson, and in those days, Fourwall was a big company that we dealt with both on the East Coast and the West Coast. But these companies all became part of many of the other large companies that we know today. Right. Yeah. So these acquisitions pulled the inventory, these acquisitions pulled the people, and it pulled the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that was quite important. So I was really prepared in certain ways to connect the dots. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. So, you know, g going back again, so... Before you got to Aerie, really, what was what were you doing? Okay, so for uh, let me go backwards. So for the yes. seven years before Aerie, Joe Tuil and I and a third person had a case company called Excalibur Cases. Yeah, and we had a wonderful run because of Joe's contacts and my contacts of clients that we made cases for rock and roll, we made cases for aerospace, we made cases for camera, for sound equipment. We did a lot of business with the um, motion picture sound recording components. Yeah. And that introduced me to even more people. I became an expert at negative space of product. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting <laughs> to say, I know what it was with the size, what was it was gonna go. But the other part, I really could watch the trending. Yeah. So one of our early accounts was Claremont Camera, a wonderful motion picture camera run by Denny Claremont, who passed away, and Terry Claremont, who passed away before him. So it came to be a thread here. I'm talking about people that have great admiration as mentors. Yeah. But he called me up. I did not know who he was when he called. In the very, we had only started the business. And he said, I'm the largest motion picture camera supplier in Hollywood next to Panavision. And I said, well, I better get myself over there. <laughs> so I did, and I learned one of my most valuable lesson in sales. Joe Tawil taught me this, but this was also something that Denny Claremont said right off the top. I want you to listen what I have to say. Mm. And I think one of the things we fumble a lot is we're so prepared to talk yep. that we don't listen. And Denny said to me, I want my cases made like this, very specifically. If you do that, you will have all my business because everybody else had switched things along the way. Yeah. And we went on to make all of the cases as he grew his company. And this is God's honest truth. Individual cameramen who would buy gear would come by Denny to prep it and so forth. And they would say, I'm going to go get some cases. And they would talk about an alternate case company. And Denny would say, no, you need to talk to my friend John. He'll take care of you. He'll set you up. Right. And 90% of the time, it went that way. Yeah. But this one fellow said, "Nah, I don't think so. I'm going to go. And Denny said, I'll tell you what. I'll arm wrestle you. <laughs> and if I win, you go to John. And if I lose, you can do whatever you want to. That's how loyal of a customer he was. That is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. He made that, that really easy for you, though. Like he said, 
do this, mm-hmm. and you'll get all my business. It so was, you just shut up, and you did that. Took the notes, <laughs> made what he said, bought the components the way that he asked for it, and it wasn't that far of an outlier that we couldn't do it for other things, but it yeah. became the baseline of what we did for our camera cases and right. even our sound cases and so forth. So that was a very, very valuable lesson. And I would go by Claremont Camera almost every day at the end of the day. Now, we were talking like 7, 8 o'clock at night for yeah. the end of the day. And although that's not late by rock and roll standards, yeah. that was late for going around, you know, seeing most of the clients. And he would stop and he'd say, let's walk around and see what I got today. He was getting so much gear in that he wanted to just make sure he walked around and checked everything, okay? And I would be writing up enough business to keep us busy probably 50% of that's our incredible. capacity. That is incredible, that's a great story. And then comparative to that, just to be humbled by what that was, um, we got a few contracts in aerospace that was very much uh, different than what we did for everything else, but their specifications, again, had to be kept very tight. So I had learned over the years to be very mindful of specifications, and this was just example. When you're making a case for the midsection of the Intelsat satellite, mm-hmm. you don't want to take any cutting quarters. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that was a good thing. So that was my seven years of cases, getting the people going, and I very much knew a very product on the camera side because of that, but also the lighting product that, meanwhile, I said Charlie Davidson was going. Yeah. So back up before that, from 75 to 1980 was when I was at Berkey Colortran. Okay. And how I got there was Berkey Colortran, in terms of marketing, believed in sending out a very nice three-ring binder with their cut sheets to anybody, including students, who wanted it. So I had my Klegel catalog. I had my Strand Century catalog. I had all the other catalogs. And here was this wonderful graphic binder from Colortran that I would walk through. At that point in time, I didn't know Joe Tawil. At that point in time, I didn't know Tom Pinkew, but I certainly know what was in the binder. It turned out that I went to an ATA, American Theater Association. I was at school at Carnegie Mellon University in their school of drama, wonderful school, wonderful classmates, wonderful alumni. And both Joe and Tom Pinkew, I'm referencing, were graduates of that school. Uh, I believe Tom was class of 56 and Joe was class of 60 along with Jules Fisher and along with many other people in that time frame. But anyway, I heard that also at this show, it was in Minneapolis, that Joe Tuil was going to present a paper on what's lighting our stage. And I was intrigued because he said everybody's working on electronic control consoles. We're talking about 1974. But who was working on new fixtures? Now we don't think twice about people working on fixtures. But then that was kind of the dead zone, if you will, in the early 70s of who was working on fixtures for the theatrical market. So I went and listened to his paper. I introduced myself. And concurrently, I was offered an internship at Berkey Colortran because of that and because of my professor at Carnegie. So I was going to spend my final semester at Colortran. Nothing could have been a better internship for what I ended up doing than those four months. Right, yeah, it sounds like it. My first month was working in the photometric laboratory, really dissecting and learning about the photometrics of lighting fixtures. There was an interesting product that was developed by Berkey Colortran at that time called the Color Spot, and it used a reflector instead of lenses, an off-axis reflector like you would have in a basic telescope system. Mm -hmm. So the lamp was up front, bounced off the reflector in the back of the fixture, and then came out the front of the fixture. And there's been a lot of, uh, you know, on the internet, a lot of comments about that particular optic that was used back in the day. Another one was a rack and pinion focus system. This one did not stay in the market very long at all, called the Berkey Beam. But that's how I got to learn about ellipsoidal spotlights. Mm -hmm. And then they concurrently made what I think was the best ellipsoidal up until the Source 4 came out, which was the Berkey Colortran ellipsoidal, and then the mini ellipse version of that. So I was very connected to what was being done in the lab. And Tom Pinky, I mentioned, was the product manager of that, which was wonderful. But I wanted to go into sales. So after a stint of customer service, being a manager of customer service and learning the inside track, I started for three years to be their outside salesperson for the theatrical market and uh, showing all these products to, huh. to people. Interesting. And that's how I got my transition. Now, part of the reason why the internship was intriguing to me, going backwards, I originally went to college to train to become a Broadway lighting designer because I was actually told by people at a summer program at Northwestern that Carnegie Mellon was the best place to go if you wanted to go to uh, light on Broadway. 
But while I was there, the professor realized and pointed out to me, I seemed to be more interested in the gear than I did in the design. It's not that I ignored the design, but it's just I was so focused on what that was. And I took that to heart, and that's kind of how I made that trend. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But I want to tell you one other story, how far back it goes. And this is serendipity. I mean, this is pretty good. For those people who remember, some of the very early textbooks on lighting was Stanley McCandless, both the method of lighting stage and his syllabus, and Parker and Smith by Warren Parker, and I'm sorry that I forget Mr. Smith's first name, but uh, I studied during my high school years from those books, and all of my notes, all my ledgers, all my, I didn't really do big draftings, but you know, all of my light plots, I passioned after what was in those books. I really took that to heart. And when I was invited to interview at Carnegie Mellon my senior year, I had no idea this was the case because on the book it said Oren Parker was a teacher at Yale. He had transferred to teach at Carnegie Mellon University. So I go for my interview, show him my portfolio, show him my drafting, show him all my notes, and it's all in the style of this book. Just really? totally serendipity. That wow. So there was a lot That's of connections incredible. that just kind of connecting the dots as we yeah, were talking yeah, about yeah. earlier yeah. made it all go back. Yeah. But I would, I would have to say, if I go one step further, I met up with a gentleman that I went to high school with, and he was really into liquid light show items. Now, I had no idea at that time about Joshua Lights and all the people yeah. we all give credit to for yeah. the psychedelic scene, but he had made his own home version of this, and that was really the first moment that I was intrigued. The second moment I was really intrigued was when I went to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. They had a new theater, and I spent the whole time looking at the show of Tamburlaine. I remember Tamburlaine, but I spent the whole show, like many of us lighting people do, looking up <laughs> at yeah. what the lights are doing, yeah, right, yeah. as opposed to watching the show. So I had that stop. But there were a lot of real moments that got me to where yeah. it all backs up. So you can kind of see the Yeah, pathway. yeah, no, it, your, your, your path, your future was planned mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah, every, it, everything it, was going in a direction exactly. you were just following just, just what fo was following happening the stars yeah say. yeah no that's incredible so you know airy is also obviously a very storied company and and uh there's so much i don't know about mm -hmm. it you know I, I own a used equipment company i do know that used airy equipment is very sought after people want it bad you know, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it probably hasn't changed a ton. So, you know, there's there's not a billion different versions of things. Fair so, enough. you know, when people need them, they need the same thing that they've got, and there's a lot of them out there. But I, I do know that, that uh, you know, it's a very good name. It's a very good company. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know a ton well, about let it, me, though. So let, I, I did a bit of research, okay, and sure. I, I realized that it was founded in 1924. Um, Actually, a little bit before that, but go, let, go oh, ahead really? with that. Yeah. Oh, well, we've celebrated We've celebrated our internet. centennial already, so we're about 103 well, years. Well, you tell in. me then. Okay, tell me well, the that, that'll be fine. So two guys, uh, Arnold and Richter, hence where the Airy comes from, A-R-N-R-I. Oh, okay. And so when we talk about geezers of gear... They weren't, of course, at that time. They were it, young whippersnappers. Right. But they were filmmakers with what technology existed. And like so many people, they say, you know, let's do this a little differently. Maybe we'll go into the back room and sit here and tinker with what we have. And then they had ideas, let's make something better. One of their very first products was a light that they made. They had a lot that they did in recording. But mostly important, they were focused on the camera and that camera is what morphed into them starting the company. Okay. And they did a lot of things just with a very small group of people initially, but over time, their engineering and their mechanical detail, of course, this was all made in the Munich, Germany area. Uh, the castings that were made were all made on the property of one of the owners that was out in the Bavarian countryside, and so they had a foundry that they could work with. But the you might say the precision that they did all the mechanics was what really set them apart. And they focused on relatively small cameras compared to what was being used for motion picture in Hollywood at the time. Okay. So if I can jump ahead a little bit, one of Please. the big breakthroughs is when Eric Kessner, who had joined them, and he's credited with this in the Motion Picture Academy, developed the spinning mirror shutter so 
you would have this revolving shutter so that your viewfinder and what you were looking at through the lens was exactly the same as what was being exposed on the film. Okay. Before that time, you had a bit of parallax, you had a little bit of distance because the viewfinder was not exactly through the taking lens. Ah. So that was a major breakthrough in what was recognized for the technology that we had done. Unfortunately, it really took World War II for a lot of the camera equipment actually to make its way to America because so many of the cameras were used in documentary and news gathering and so forth during the war. It made itself over into the U.S. Also, our headquarters was bombed during the war, hmm. so they rebuilt the entire headquarters in Munich after the war and operated out of the Bavarian countryside in the meantime to keep things going. Interesting. So it was quite uh, a bit of history there from the perspective of Germany mm -hmm. on how their technology was used in all of what we would consider news gathering or documentary work. Right, yeah. Time. Yeah, wow. So, um, you know, when did they move into lighting? When did they grow? So they were doing stages the way we think of Hollywood stages with the large lights up into the, you know, catwalks and the green beds overhead. So we have a lot of pictures, fortunately, still to show with German-based scripts shot in German stages with the large lights. These lights were very Teutonic in nature as they all were in that day. We had the foundry, so we yeah. made big, heavy castings. Yeah. And they had good optics that they knew about because of the cameras. And they made some very good fixtures for the time. Mm -hmm. The other thing they even had was generator trucks. These were open trucks, not closed like we think of now. And they were able to power the lights. And some of these lights even resemble in concept some of our newer lights now because a lot of them did not have large lenses, but rather large reflectors. Mm -hmm. And the large reflectors could be, in some cases, modified or interchanged, as far as I know about this. And so we have some wonderful pictures of these trucks that were out for location work that have large reflector-based spotlights and large reflector-based wow. floodlights and yeah. a generator right on board. Jesus. But none of that came over to the Americas. That right. was all based in what they would do in the surrounding areas of right. Germany. So as I had said later, it took until the 70s before the lights came into the States. Oh, really? It's, it's into the States. And so the very first HMIs in 1972 that I referenced from the Munich Olympics, it was like, hey, let's show this in America. But because they were distributed by Colortrain, as I mentioned, they yeah. say, no, let's wait a little bit. Colortrain said, we're going to make our own. HMIs. So it wasn't until they became the wholly owned subsidiary in 1977-78 that they shipped over the HMIs to compete with those that were being developed by Wally Mills, those were being developed by LTM, and at the time, Mulrigan was not making any HMIs. So Mul Richardson was the king of tungsten units for filmmaking, but there was still kind of a, a bit of a grab for who was going to do what with the HMI field. Oh, I see. So it's very interesting, first focused, you know, in the Hollywood market, but really all of the U.S., there were a limited number of people making lights for the motion picture market because Mole was so prominent. There was Bardwell McAllister, there were others, but for the most part, Mole. HOI got maybe five people total mm -hmm. that yeah. was going for that market. Joe Tawil was importing actually a brand from, um, from Japan, the Rio de Janeiro, uh, no, Rio Dencha, that's what it was, excuse me, I almost, <laughs> I almost went to Brazil, um, Rio Dencha, and I remember those were square housings, I remember making cases for them, I remember being out with Joe with those on the sales force, and they didn't really catch on in a big way, but some people we know from the concert world, Bill McManus, you remember that name? Yeah, of course, yeah. McManus Enterprises was somebody who invested a lot in those particular fixtures, because really? he and Joe were really, really good friends, so yeah. here was the start in my way of learning about the crossover as early as the uh, late 70s in that while I was still at Colortran and then with the case business and so forth. So it's interesting though, because we go from very few with the tungsten base, a handful for the HMI base, a lot more when we get into fluorescence. Of course, now with LED, the, there's a tremendous quantity yeah. of, of companies that are offering gear. But um, I've, I've always been intrigued with just how that you know yeah. flowed through. So, Ari, really wasn't a lighting brand in, in the United, in the United States, States until the 70s. Unless people went over to the seas and learned about them. 
Okay. Now, Mole tried to do this in reverse. Mole Richardson opened up satellite offices in Europe. Yeah. So there was Mole Richardson Spain. There was Mole Richardson, I, th I think, in France and you know, a few other places. But they never really matured. Yeah. You know, and so they were bought into by other companies. But what I understand, um, it really wasn't until 77 that people started recognizing the Airy brand as lighting into the uh, Americas. So although I wasn't with them until 87, I was tracking that path. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, one of the things I, I seem to understand about Airy, and I, I might be wrong, you'll correct me, I'm sure, is that they seem to have stayed in their lane. They seem to have... Uh, uh, just really focused on what they do really well or you do really well and versus trying to like move into other markets rock and roll or or other types of lighting um, first of all is that true I would say that's very true yeah a um, lot of opportunities people would come to the owners of Aerie uh, come to Mr. Arnold and would say would you like to work together? Would you like to buy the company? Whatever it is. And some of these um, you know, companies are prominent brands today. Um, some of these companies were working with us in some of the regions, but not globally, for whatever reason yeah. that wasn't picked up upon. But I think the other thing to go back to, the construction of both Mole Richardson fixtures and the Airy fixtures were done to almost last one's lifetime. Yeah. And so when people bought additional Moral Richardson function equipment, it wasn't because they were retiring anything for yeah. the most part. We're talking yeah. about the majority. They were building up their inventories. And because of that market demand, people weren't going to buy the area unit unless it was as durable. When we designed them with the castings and all the other things, we didn't design them to be the lightest weight. Yeah. We did focus on being the best optics but we also and still do focused on the durability and the life of the product. Yeah. And I think because of that, and that's where the focus is, staying in one's own lane is always, we do not want to deviate from proper optics and longevity. But there was, you know, there wasn't really a moment when someone said, you know, I think we could really build you know, uh, whatever. Oh, there, there are plenty of things. <laughs> you know, or, uh, yeah, there are plenty of things that were tinkered with. Yeah. But they tended to be things that were tinkered with that followed more the motion picture side. Right. Um, and maybe there were a few things that were tinkered with that was an idea that really didn't go anywhere. But we were more interested in seeing if what we had made could cross over for a particular look. Right, right. Right, just the same way nine lights became big in the rock and roll market, but yeah. the nine lights and the you know, different types of, of uh, variations of that all came from motion picture first. Right, right, right. Interesting. So, you know, when you look at, obviously LED has dominated mm -hmm. almost anything in, in lighting at this point, but um, Aerie as a company, how quickly did you respond to that light source, the LED in, light In terms source? of R&D, right away. Oh, in terms of R&D, we have projects going on that we don't really expect are going to come to market that quickly. So this was the same type of thing. First, let me reference camera. We were working on digital cameras at various phases. How could you get the sensor and everything else that was being done with the system to get as close as possible to what people expected from film? Mm -hmm. We were not going to compromise. And so we had one camera that then morphed into what I would call a very boxy, almost prototypical piece called the D20. Mm -hmm. And this product was used by a few people, but we didn't try to streamline it. We didn't try to have all the functions in it just to see how it was going to work. And this is where we got caught by surprise. We weren't the only one. Because of the whole shift of what was happening with both the union that was supporting television and the union that was supporting motion picture, there became a day where they shifted, and it was almost like overnight, nobody was going to buy, I'm not talking about using, buying a motion picture camera that used film equipment. Oh. We were expecting it to taper. Yeah. We were expecting to build and to find the sweet spot of the crossover. But what happened, there was literally a fiscal cliff of nobody buying wow. film cameras because of this part. When was that? This would have been, I want to say, in the 
late 90s, early 2000s that we okay. were doing all of this R&D. Relatively recent. Still. Right. But it wasn't until 2005, and I'm not having the dates exactly right, that we were really ready to penetrate the market. So right. our first digital camera was built off of that platform called the Alexa camera. Mm-hmm. And the Alexa camera shot like a rocket in terms of being used for motion picture work as a digital camera. And because all of our focus was on that, we weren't necessarily as fast on the LED lighting side, even though we were doing separate research work. Yeah. So our very first uh, LED product was, you might say, uh, a study of how it would work to have all the controls. And it was an amazing product, but there was no way to commoditize it to be sold. Because what was it, was, it? it was called the PAX system, P-A-X. And it was a series of roughly the size of a silver dollar LED, which is very similar to what's used now. Mm-hmm. And we had this, I want to say now, in the neighborhood of 10 years ago, maybe even a little earlier in terms of its prototype. And you could control not only all of the color, which you would expect, but you could also call up all of the Roscoe colors, all of the Lee colors, and so forth. And this was relatively new that this was done to a color accuracy that filmmakers would approve. So in terms of a R&D project, it was very successful. But what type of light was it, though? Was it a soft light, or what was it? It, it was a block light. It was similar to something a little larger than my phone, uh, and it had a series of eight of these in the piece, oh, and see. they interchanged together. Okay. There's a lot of people who use this format now, but they would link together. And because it was prototypical, we didn't have that many of them. Right. But, you know, the idea is you could create. And this was developed before we really decided what we wanted the end product to be. It was, it was kind of, this is a good way to start and get all the R&D, yeah. which yeah. was really important. Because when we then started to say, what's the fixture going to be? We made a series of three Fresnels, which we call the L7 for the 7-inch size, the L5, and the L10 based on size range. Yeah. And the color quality and also probably most important, the shadow quality was first of its class to really be quite something to emulate what people were used to from a tungsten source. And everybody was comparing it to the tungsten or tungstens with gel. They wanted something to compare to the HMI, but it wasn't powerful enough. Mm-hmm. But all of the tests that were being done, okay, let's look at this in terms of color, of course, compared. And we got very high marks, and the L series was working, but the thing that we knew we needed to work on was a soft light. Mm-hmm. Now, go to about 10 years ago, I told you that this was kind of coming. That period of 10 years ago to seven years ago was the sweet spot because we transferred that knowledge base into the core color science of our sky panel. And the sky panel was the product that shot off like a rocket, just like we talked about the Alexa camera. But again, we were not developing 20 different things at once. We were developing one thing. Yeah. And then when that was launched, we would develop a different size. And when that was launched, we'd develop a different size. So now we have four different sizes of the sky panel. The most popular and the one in the market the longest is the X60. But here we are. That product has been out in the U.S. market a little over six years. We just received an engineering Emmy from the Television Academy in Hollywood. This. I just saw this uh, maybe yesterday or this morning or something. Yes. Yeah, that's And because incredible. it was an engineering... Congratulations. It, thank you. <laughs> because this was an engineering Emmy, if it wasn't, uh, it wasn't COVID period, our engineers and management would have been over for the award to grab it. I right. had the wonderful opportunity to actually receive the award oh. on behalf of the company, which was a, a fun photo op, and I was very grateful to be able to say the words that we wanted to say. But my point is... I wanted to segue here that this is only the second LED light that the Hollywood-based Television Academy has given an engineering award for. The first one was an original panel by light panel that we all know, and ours is the second. They've only given a total of nine lighting awards from that particular, uh, I'm going to explain why in a moment, but that particular um, award segment that they do. And if you look back, Verilite had three of the first ones. I'm going back about, uh, let's say, probably 1985 till now. I haven't gone back before that to see when the Mole Richardsons may have gotten in. But it's interesting that it's really slow go. 
because so much of their focus is the whole ecosystem of what happens in broadcast right. and television. Yeah. So they're really focused on a lot of areas. So we are very honored by it. We're very grateful for it. But that was basically, if you think about it, 10 years between when we were putting that product together. Now, we've won awards when it came out, but this yeah. is just from that point. So S Sky Panel came out 10 years ago or no, seven no, years No, no, Sky ago? Panel came out about uh, six and a half years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Sky Panel today, mm -hmm. is it still Sky Panel? Yes, it's and I'm happy to say you buy a Sky Panel today, and the only difference between it and the ones you would have bought in the beginning is we have a second version light engine. The fixture is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can upgrade the firmware. We've had plenty of firmware upgrades, yeah, right? Yeah. And if you want to match them, you can go into the settings and you can match it exactly to what the V1 version was. Oh, it just emulates a V1. Exactly. Yeah. If you leave it, it will be brighter if you leave it alone. But right. all the accessories, and so that's one of the key successes that's is amazing, the return yeah. on investment. Because the rental houses and the rest of it, they don't have to pick and choose. So is it called a Sky Panel V2 or a Sky Panel? It, it, it does show on the fixture which it is, but we haven't changed the name. Everything of it. about it looks be the same. Be yeah, because else, yeah. the difference is not so yeah, different in, yeah. in the rental house. Well, and you can make them exactly, exactly. the same by just yeah. emulating the other fixture. That's really great. And, and actually, I, I had just spoken with Chris Gonti about mm -hmm. some of this stuff you know, lighting manufacturers, LEDs have been sort of a bug light for, you know, marketing departments mm -hmm. and stuff and engineers because, you know, as the generations of LEDs change, they come out with new fixtures yep. around brighter LEDs or more efficient LEDs or, you know, different packaging or whatever it is. And um, that's been driving rental companies crazy. And it always has. You can't get a return on your investment. Yes, that's, you know? that is a key thing, and that's why when you say stay in our lane, that's the payoff for the customer. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's not that there aren't things that we would like to bring to market faster or concurrently. It's just yeah. we choose what it's going to be. Yeah. And our latest product would actually be a very good segue along with the Sky Panel in terms of some of the other things we were talking before we started, and that is what's going on with, uh, you know, XR, VR, MR, yeah, and then yeah. I always add no, I RR. RR is rest and relaxation in between <laughs> everything else that you're doing because yeah. there's so much. But everybody, as we can see from the show floor, which is amazing, as you yeah. said in your intro, yeah. um, we are very involved with the ecosystem and metadata of our cameras, our lights, and screen backgrounds in order to facilitate the best possible look for high-end cinema. That's where we start. Yeah. But we're also doing a lot in broadcast, and we have various facilities right now in Europe, and we have uh, what I would say a very small test bed going on in our own Burbank facility in order to facilitate this whole chain. But our latest lighting product feeds right into that. And that is yeah. the product called an orbiter. Unfortunately, COVID really slowed down a lot of the accessories that were being manufactured and yeah. developed. So it really was a very jagged start. But rest assured, all those out there listening, the orbiter that we promised of the accessories and other things that go with it will be coming out during the first part of 2022. Excellent. So it's just yeah. a delay. But it's really a challenge, and, and challenge is a good thing. It's been really a challenge to identify that a color of the light that was so important in filming to what it's doing, what you can manipulate with a camera, both during production and, and afterwards, what you actually have of the different lookup tables, the LUTs as they call them with what the camera is doing, yeah. what you can set for the lights, and what's happening with the screens. And many people who are your listeners who's following this will know that this is you know, the challenge, the welcome challenge of what's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a little bit, like, LED obviously changed everything. It mm -hmm. changed rock and roll lighting. It changed theatrical lighting. Uh, some markets were slower to move than others. Rock and roll went very quickly. Theatrical, because of some of the things you've all, shadows, you know, was, was a big one in, in theatrical lighting, uh, where the earliest uh, ellipsoidals or Fresnels were causing weird multicolor mm -hmm. shadows and things. Exactly, you had a lot of chromatic aberration, which yeah, is something yeah. that we well, see, just you say cannot it much more well, elegantly. But, well, I learned that from Tom Pinkew back in 1975. Uh, but um, the the point that you're getting to though is really important. You have to decide early on what is acceptable for your field of light based yeah. on your market. Yeah. All right, and we all know when you do close-ups, it's a whole different story than when you're doing your wide shot, especially when you're doing. 
um, the show and you come in really close on a prominent uh, actor or performer or singer, yeah, you want to yeah. make sure you don't have seven nose shadows. You know, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, but where I was really trying to get to, and I talk too much sometimes, was like, how do you think LED really changed or uh, advanced um, television lighting? Well, this is exactly why it was honored, the engineering factor. Yeah. And other submittals have not. Okay. And without really getting about why, there's a tremendous number of submittals in order to be recognized. But when does the industry say, this is the one that really made a difference? Mm -hmm. This is the one, not that they're writing a standard to it, but this is the one people compare it to. You know, we yeah. all know there's things, how, how good is that car compared to another car? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that all happens. So I would say it took a while, not for people to use LED, but for people to say, this is the standard of the color quality that we want in a soft, smooth light. Mm. And that's a completely different thing than if you're honoring, I'm just gonna make an assumption here, if you're honoring Verilite is one of the first moving lights that's used in television because there it was all about the look, right. not so much about the detail of how that field of light looked yeah. on a close-up on a performer. Yeah, yeah, super important. And, you know, so I mean, it, it probably, you know, doesn't, uh, you, you don't miss the fact that there's a lot of other soft lights out there being uh, either produced or engineered or even just imported by uh, many companies in, in our industry. You know, has that made the Airy product um, more popular or less popular? Uh, well, the popularity of it is different than the sales of it or even the rental right, yeah, of it, yeah. okay? So if people put it, as we say, put it on the list, yeah. right? Generally, the rental house or the provider will say, yes, I can get you that because I have it or I can get it for you. If they can't, they may say, would you take this equivalent? Yeah. Now, if the, the director of photography says, no way, yeah. I'm not taking, I want that or not, yeah. that's a big difference. And I was talking about this last night where if it says airy sky panel or equal, that's a different story. If it says airy sky panel, exclamation point, yeah. end of story, yeah. right? Yeah. So our goal is to make sure that that exclamation point is there. Yeah. Not because we want anybody else to not get their equipment in use, but yeah. we don't want it to be known as a substitute. Right. And and also, hopefully, I would I would think, anyways, if I was a manufacturer, I would look at it like this. When competition does come in, and it's either brighter or lower cost or mm -hmm. a better shape or a better this or that, better in some way, it probably pushes you to innovate a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, the thing, the, the success of the Sky Panel is, is in part due to the fact that it really hasn't changed in seven mm -hmm. years. So and let me, this is the line I use. Yeah. How much more are you willing to pay for the Aerie product? Yeah. Because I've never gone to the fact that we would be equal or lower priced. It may happen at some point in time of certain things, but that's yeah. not the original intent. Yeah. The original intent is the price is the price to maintain the integrity that we mentioned and the longevity that we mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, it's an incredible success. It, it really is. It's amazing to me, you know, how long the longevity that you guys have in all of your products, you know, the, the so fact that, may I give you another example? Please, Electronic yeah. ballast as opposed to magnetic ballast yeah. for HMIs. First attempts at electronic ballast were in the 70s. I mentioned that Colortran wanted to make their own HMI. They made the head, and I was there when they were developing an electronic ballast that was one inch thick and approximately eight inches by eight inches that was going to be on standoffs on the back of the fixture, right? But unfortunately, the co components that were available didn't withstand the heat, and so you couldn't get the longevity. Okay. So that product was scrapped, and everybody else in the market went to a magnetic ballast at that time, didn't even attempt as far as I know. But there were some f early innovators that did a pretty good job. But again, the struggle was, what's the longevity? Yeah, yeah, it the, matters. The company that we work with for our electronic ballast is a company that we have a very long time association. In fact, there's co-ownership. But uh, the point that I'm trying to make, these two gentlemen who, again, almost like Arnold and Richter, they developed an electronic ballast that when we were given them to sell, and I'm talking now, this was about 93, 94, we were told, say the life is 10 years. And that was considered a long time for electronics. 
Now, we know a lot of things like Sony Trinitrons. Heck, I just got rid of my one that's 40-some years old, right? Yeah. But I'm talking about a lot of things that were happening in electronics at that time. Ten years was an acceptable length of time mm -hmm. because not that we didn't think the product would fail, but we couldn't necessarily guarantee replacement components in the electronic field right. because that was the 10-year span that people gave. I'm happy to say that over, and this is just my best guess, I haven't actually done a real study, over 98% of all the electronic ballasts we have ever sold are still working in the marketplace that's unless incredible. they're in for service to turn yeah, through. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. It, so I, I just spoke with, uh, with Chris Conti about yes, this at PRG. Good gentleman. And he said, uh, I asked him, do you see a day soon when PRG will be 100% LED? And he said, absolutely. You know, and it's, it's relatively soon. How, and, what is relatively soon, if I may ask what he said? Well, I, he didn't, I didn't ask him to because put a date. If I my, might, guess is, my guess is PRG, you know, there's some economy right. that, that matters, you know, because they've got a lot of non-LED moving light fixtures and things like that. But I would think it's within a couple of years for most rental so companies. So here's a question, and this is not to dispute what PRG feels. 30% yeah. of our business right now is non-LED. Now, our business has grown dramatically, yep. so it's not like we're not selling a lot of LED. Right. But it doesn't replace the large HMIs for filmmaking. Okay. I'm talking specifically filmmaking where they want one source of light, yeah. a lot of light, and so we're talking about it. We have on order now more interest for our Arimax 18K light with the open face reflector. We have more demand for that product than ever before. That's incredible. I mean, the question I was going to ask you is, do you see? I see it, yes, but a time not, not when in there that is, time. Yes. when there is no non-LED product. But I'm thinking it's closer to eight, ten years. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Before you really obsolete the yeah. need for some of the things. That yeah, I mean, use. I was talking with with uh, PRG specifically. That's in not an engineering answer. Unit. That's not our engineers talking. Yeah, That's yeah. my guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's a good answer. It's a good answer. I mean, you know. I would guess, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that you were one company who was very prepared for some of the changes that happened as a result of COVID with the XR and the, like you said, the VR and the RR. Um, were you? like, were, so Did you have to in innovate at all? Did you have to change products or develop products to, to match XR? The, the, we are developing things. Yeah. Okay. And we had been. In fact, the Orbiter which came out in 19, actually had a lot of things built in to be uh, compatible with what was going on in XR. Yeah. So we were ahead of the COVID crunch with that. Okay. If anything, COVID pulled our timeline apart that we were doing ahead of time. I see, yeah. But I think the other thing that I'm happy to say for us, filmmaking, motion picture-based filmmaking, came back with a protocol to do work as we know, well before a lot of the other shows did, yeah. whether it be live or, or, or if there was a live component, we all know it was much longer. Yeah. So we were back to full work in manufacturing for lighting at the tail end of August, which was sooner than a lot of things yes, were happening. Definitely. So although not all of our workforce came back um, from, because we had some for like so many people did, right away we yeah. kind of tethered it we had almost everybody back working before the end of last year oh wow yeah that's and now we're in a growth spurt that's well well beyond what we yeah, were yeah, before yeah. COVID. it's nuts. so in that respect we in as a motion picture industry were much um it was much easier to keep people employed longer sooner back and so forth as i say yeah yeah no that's amazing I mean, last, last thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, if, if, and I asked, again, I asked Chris the same thing, but, you know, look into your crystal ball. What's, what's, what can, what do you think we're going to see coming from a tech, technology standpoint that's just going to vastly change things in the next, let's say, two or three years? Is there anything that yeah. you can see on the horizon? Well, I do. And this was actually a big part of the keynote speak yesterday that Bob did. Yeah. You know, it's just how are all of these elements whether you tie it into what's being called the metaverse or whether you break it down to how does just change of what's being used in the normal part. But I want to give you an idea. Mm -hmm. And this idea is something we've been developing a long time. 
standard motion picture lighting work oftentimes has been very serendipity. Sure, they know where they want to put the light, but they'll move it around easy. Right. All right. Same thing with all the parameters of light. So to give all that back as metadata so it's actively, it's like the opposite of programming your show. Right. So the orbiter is designed to do that. Positioning, it even has a sensor to tell you what the ambient color and the ambient intensity of a light that's hitting it. Oh, that's interesting. So, for example, if you were to have the orbiter and the sunlight hits that sensor, it can replicate the exact color temperature of that moment of the light setting it and a relative intensity that can all be set. That's wow. just an example that's cool. of where we're going with a lot of these yeah. things. So people who do pre-program their show, that may not be necessarily a component they're used to thinking about yet, yeah. but they might decide they want to trigger something off a trigger right, sound. Right. So the whole idea, it, it's already in play, but the whole idea of sensors and the triggering and how that all works in a metadata stream, and you tie that into what's being done with conceptually everything that wants to be done. And we favor MR, mixed reality, because yeah. we're keeping the standard components working with the extended and, of course, the unreal. We work very closely, as most everybody is, with um, what's being developed with the Unreal Light Engine and what's being developed with all the people that are supporting yeah. the color science onto the screens. Yeah. No, that's incredible. I mean, some of the some of the technology from a from an information standpoint, you know, collecting information and and just taking more data in, mm -hmm. to me that's so important and and I love what it's doing. So, I mean, I guess the last question I would ask you is what do you think of the show? Like how I love the show. Um, I heard my opinion. Yes, on it. exactly. Yeah, so. But just to put it the only LDI that I ever missed was the very first one. Charlie oh, wow. went yeah. to check it out. And you I, know what? I'm exactly the same. I really, missed the very first very, one. Very I've been good. to everyone since then. Yeah, so Charlie was there. He said, we're doing this, even though it's not our wheelhouse quite yet. Let's see what we can do. And I've been to every single one. This one is different. I miss the students not being here. Right. I miss the instructors not being here. But in terms of a collective of people talking about what's going on, and the idea that I can break away a little bit more and come here and I can go listen to Bob do the keynote speech yeah, and I yeah. could go by the circle bar and, you know, talk to a yeah. few people last night. That's the essence of what they made this. So I kudos to the show. I mean, yeah. uh, there's no question. Yeah. And um, we're, we're already signed up for next year and a bigger well, booth than this year. And so good, forth. good. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I remember very recently. Uh, you know, I get in, I talk a lot. I'm a noisy guy and I, I have these group discussions on Zoom and stuff with people in the industry. And very recently there were talks that LDI shouldn't happen this year. And, um, you know, LDI always responded with a resounding LDI is absolutely happening this year. They, they had representatives that were on these group calls and stuff that we were doing. And I always believed that LDI needed to happen this year. The industry needed it, uh, people needed it, individuals needed to see people again. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think it was really important that we had it. I'm glad they did it. I think they've done an amazing job. I think some of the changes that they did, maybe out of necessity, are going to carry forward mm -hmm. and and i think they're very positive so i appreciate you doing this i thank appreciate you, you i appreciate the, the opportunity i learned more in the last hour i think than i've learned like my head's going oh, thank you right now may so. i just give a final comment Please. as i mentioned missing to students yeah one of the things i know happens and i think that this period of time during covid people doing podcasts you doing what you gave more opportunity for people to learn just like you say now right yeah and so one of the things I think is always so important is that we remember to support, just like I was so well supported yeah. by Joe Tawil and many people early on, yeah. that we support all the people coming on up. And yeah. there's a lot of mechanism. Fred Foster of ETC was big yeah, on this. Huge. Right? Yeah. And I was always a part of being called by Fred to be part. That's just the idea that we all want to make sure we give back. In, in every way. I mean, whether, whether you're a lighting designer and you're mentoring younger lighting designers or, uh, you know, I know I spent the entire time of COVID talking to people who needed help or, or mm -hmm. wanted to share information back and forth or, you know, I, I was busier than I've ever been mm -hmm. because I just took on a completely different sort of a leadership role or a mentor role that was really important and, and proved to be something that helped some people in some companies. So, so thank you for that because yeah, yeah, I no. think collectively most people wanted to do it, yeah. didn't have the time, and then made a point to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, I we have to. I mean, people who hit your level in our industry, my level, all of, 
you know, we have to give back, we have to pay forward, we have mm -hmm. to do all of those things because, you know, that's, uh, there's just such a wealth of knowledge out there. And when I started this podcast, that's what it was about. It was about, you know, making sure that we get the voices of people who were there when things first happened or whatever. I apologize, my phone keeps ringing, but it's actually the next person well, coming in. I don't so. want to take anybody else's yeah, time, yeah, no, so uh, I, we could I you and I you. could talk all day. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah no, I appreciate you very much, and thank you, and have fun for the rest of the show. I plan and, on it. And uh, I've enjoyed meeting you, so Same here. thanks. All thank right. you. All right. Thank you.